Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Wednesday, September 29th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, October 4th, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 76th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. I want to welcome you to a very special show tonight which includes as our featured guest, Dave Lindorf, the award-winning investigative reporter and founder of the journalism site, This Can't Be Happening. He's also the author of four critically acclaimed books. We speak to him about issues connected on the 10th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, as well as some of his work around the demonizing of Iran regarding IEDs, improvised explosive devices. This promises to be an important show, so please enjoy. Okay, welcome. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. Today is Wednesday, September the 29th, 2021, and we will be airing this show this coming Monday on October the 4th, 2021 at 6 p.m. I wanted to, before introducing our guest, share that we have examined on the show, Bringing Light into Darkness, a large number of foreign policy claims that were made by the U.S. government with absolute certainty or near absolute certainty, which were then promoted by the mainstream media to the American public in an uncritical and accepting way, and then which later proved to be little more than allegations without evidence, uh, in other words, falsehoods. We illegally invaded Iraq under false pretenses, claiming that Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction, had mobile labs, was aiding and abetting and safe housing al-Qaeda terrorists, and that Saddam Hussein was involved in 9-11. All of these claims were put out to the U.S. public and endorsed by leading Democrats and Republicans, and on to war we went. The problem was none of the claims had evidence to back up the certainty of those claims, and many of us in the alternative press pointed this out at the time. However, Democrats and Republicans claim to this day everybody got it wrong, which was a complete falsehood. So the first point to make here is that we illegally invaded Iraq under false pretenses, and by doing so, if you include the pre-invasion sanction period, not just killed over a million Iraqis, and in the process infuriated many, many more, but we also put our troops in harm's way as an illegal occupying force. Iraq 
like all nations, have the sovereign right to create alliances and defense pacts with other nations. U.S. soldiers have died in Iraq from IEDs, improvised explosive devices, and many others have been severely injured. The Washington Post, in a January 3, 2020 article entitled Soleimani's Legacy, the gruesome advanced IEDs that haunted U.S. troops in Iraq, report that hundreds of victims of these explosive device weapons and their family members are seeking damages from Iran in a federal court for its role in deploying these weapons. This is according to the Military Times. You know, my heart goes out to our troops that go into harm's way, but it seems that these lawsuits are a hard case to make when you are part of an invading force in an unjust war against an inferior fighting force that seeks to try to even the playing field by creating these horrific types of weapons, these IEDs and these EFPs. A million Iraqis died as a result of our invasion. Our troops are blown to pieces based on lies that took us to war. It seems the lawsuit should be pointed towards the people that take us to war, not the people that defend their homeland and their allies. These are hard words to say, but I I just feel they must be said in order to call out and end this criminal insanity of unjust wars and interventions. Back in 2007, these claims that Iran was involved with these explosive devices in a substantial way were always alleged, but when it came time to show the evidence of those allegations, there was none or very little, even though it was regularly promised by our military leaders. In fact, the article I just cited alleges the same and places the blame at the footstep of Major General Qasim Soleimani, a military commander that we will speak more of shortly and that we have covered in some depth on previous shows. Qasim Soleimani was portrayed as responsible for many of these U.S. troop deaths, while at the same time, his role in defeating ISIS in Iraq and in Syria was and continues to be completely ignored by our U.S. government and by our mainstream media. A mainstream media that I might add, they act more as a marketing public relations firm for our foreign policies, unjust wars, and interventions than as a critical questioning monitor of the full truth of these foreign policy claims. So we make Iran and Qasim Soleimani out to be quote-unquote killer of U.S. troops instead of an ally of a nation falsely and illegally invaded by the United States-led invasion, who responded at the request of the Iraqi government in defense of an ally who was criminally attacked without cause. Unjust wars are crimes. They put our troops in harm's way, and even if they survive physically, many suffer terrible psychological burdens that too often last a lifetime. Over the last year or two, Soleimani has been basically accused uh, since his assassination in January of 2020 as being largely responsible for these improvised explosive devices, these IEDs, the upsurge and the injuries and deaths associated them to U.S. troops. And so with that type of introduction, what we do often on the show is we try to create a historical autopsy, an historical record, if you will of these deceits. Because if they're left unchallenged, 
they become a false reality in the collective U.S. public consciousness, which is then much more likely to endorse unjust interventions into the future. And we have with us, really blessed to have with us, Dave Lindor. First of all, Dave, welcome to bringing light into darkness. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> so anyhow, let me just share with you, Dave, Dave Lindorf is a veteran, award-winning investigative reporter. He's founder of the journalism site, thiscantbehappening.net. He has a book of the same title, This Can't Be Happening, the kind of the demise of democracy. He's the author of four critically acclaimed books, he is a 2019 winner of the Izzy Award for Outstanding Independent Journalism, and he lives near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's just a great pleasure to have you on, Dave. We've had this show for a long time. Bringing Light into Darkness goes back to before Iraq War, 2002, 2001. And I can remember reading some of your stuff way back then, but particularly there was a piece that you wrote that was specific to this claim that Iran was targeting U.S. troops with these IEDs and manufacturing these types of explosive bombs. These IEDs and another more advanced type was the, the EPP, the Explosively Formed Penetrators. So I guess going back to this question, you know, does a country have a right to defend itself against an invader, not just any invader, but one that's infinitely has more firepower and weaponry than the forces of the country that's getting invaded. First off, I just wanted to premise this discussion with the fact that these devices are pretty crude devices, but they were pretty effective in creating harm and casualties. But can you speak a little bit to your piece that you wrote Back in 2007, as these claims were coming out, Iran charges lying White House and credulous media that the claim that Iran was providing armor-piercing weapons to Iraqis, yet there was no clear certainty of any of that despite the multiple claims. Can you take us back to that period and explain the interest that you had in writing that piece? Yeah, well, I realized right at the start when, when Cheney and and Bush wanted to invade Iraq, that it was a complete BS story in 2002. I mean, Iraq was run by a dictator who was at war with basically the Muslim community in his own country. You know, like he, he was not a fan of jihadis at all. Mm -hmm. And he had created a fairly modern... And in many ways, oddly, because he was a brutal dictator, no question, he had created, it was a bit like Gaddafi in, in uh, Libya, he had created an island of secularism, you know, a, a region that was largely sort of still living in the Middle Ages in terms of the way it treated women, the way it treated science, you know, everything else. And so in both those countries, women had it better than anywhere else in the Middle East. And, you know, they went to college, they went to, to higher degrees, they were educated with boys in school, got the same education. I've talked with people who are Iraqis who said that, you know, first of all, people would go from neighboring countries to get their, their booze from Iraq because you could get, you could buy liquor, which is hard to get legally in most of the other Arab countries. It just goes on and on. I mean, he, it was, uh, you know, I mean, if you weren't 
worried about your right to free speech. And this is true, by the way, uh, also of Syria, uh, before the you know the civil war that that under the Assad family, Syria was a pretty modern country, and it had nightclubs and it had places where people could get together and talk about uh, ideas and stuff. You just couldn't be a, a, an opponent of the dictator. So these are the countries that the U.S. went after, these these relatively democratically, not democratic, relatively uh, liberal in the sense of uh, lifestyle countries. So I didn't see at all why the U.S. would be, you know, making these claims about Saddam Hussein being supportive of al-Qaeda. It didn't, it didn't ring true. Right. So that was one thing. Then when we went in and, and we wound up creating an insurgency because we were occupying a country by, by 2007, 2006, we were the target of a insurgency, so-called, but it was actually a, a national resistance movement to throw out an occupier. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happened in, in Afghanistan, you know, this is the same deal. The, we switched from going after al-Qaeda, which we got rid of really quickly, within weeks, and then turned against the Taliban, who were not terrorists. And, and ever since then, they were referred to as terrorists, including today, mm-hmm. and they weren't. They were, you know, you can say that they're benighted and that they're, you know, vicious and that they are, you know, pushing a, a 14th century lifestyle on people. But what they really wanted to do uh, from the start was to get the U.S. out of their country. And so actually, by our definition of our own revolution, they're freedom fighters. They were trying to get their country free of an occupier. Right. In in Iraq, and this is what I wanted to ask you to speak to a little bit more, because, you know, Wesley Clark talked about the seven nations that we were going to invade, that he had heard that directly from the the highest military sources and such, and he was was one of them. And it included all those nations that you just mentioned, basically, right? Syria and Iran was on that list as well. And so, yeah, they're still on it. (laughs) They're still on that list. That's true. And so, the issue with Iran and trying to create some type of pretext in order to invade and bomb Iraq, a lot of this story came from, and it did not make sense at many different levels. I've been studying Iran's behavior. First of all, Iran was invited into Iraq as an ally. And just as importantly, I think that Iran is very astute at not giving the United States a pretext to bomb or invade them. I would certainly think something like this, while it can be arguably something that is being done in self-defense of the country and, and has some type of legitimacy in war, that they would not have targeted U.S. troops in that manner in order to not give the U.S. even that false pretext to make military strikes on Iran. And yet the technology for these IEDs in your article, you you indicate that here we have a technology that's been around since the late 1800s. Invented by an American. Right. Monroe, whatever the guy's name was. And that not only was that the case, but the technology itself was never 
directly linked to Iran, although those claims were being made. So can you just take us back to what was the most obvious types of indications to you that they were not proving their claims? Yeah, well, for one thing, I, I just did some brief research to write that article. And I looked up on Google and I saw that they even had images of exploded devices or unexploded devices that had been picked up by U.S. minesweepers and stuff. And a lot of them were using parts that said made in USA, <laughs> you know, and had American company names on them. They, these, were, these were like jerry-rigged things that people were making in Iraq and using stolen stuff or stuff on black market. And, and also, you know, there was a very important story that got not that much attention. It was a New York Times investigation in, I think it was 2004, during the U.S. occupation of Iraq, right after the, the U.S. invasion of Iraq. It may have even been as early as 2003. The reporter found out that there was a stockpile in a weapons warehouse of C-4 explosive, like a highly powerful, shapeable explosive in this storehouse that belonged to the Iraq military. And the U.S. was not guarding that facility. And you could see people going in and out and in and out and in and out, according to the reporters, hauling out the stuff and emptying the warehouse. And these were people who were trained. These were like Iraq military guys who were now fighting against the U.S. occupation. They were hauling away the explosives. There were tons of this stuff. And uh, this is the stuff that was used to make these, you know, very powerful IEDs that blow through, you know, their shaped charges and they blow through tank armor and striker armor and do enormous damage and, you know, concussion injuries and everything else that our troops were suffering from these. They were making these using equipment that the U.S. allowed them to steal from this warehouse for days. Well, not only that, I, I remember the same year, 2003, we marched right past the Tuathi nuclear plant. <laughs> Didn't even secure that. You know, that's got nuclear waste and all sorts of stuff that you can make dirty bombs from and, and that mm-hmm. type of deal. Instead, our initial invasion was much more preoccupied with securing the oil installations and the ignoring of securing these security issues around nuclear plants and these C4 explosive warehouses that you speak of really point very clearly to what many of us were arguing from the very beginning, that this was not a war to secure the national security of our country, but to exploit the resources of another country and or to meet perceived geopolitical interests. On top of that, the idea that Iraq was not capable of making these primitive types of explosive devices that you indicated, yet apparently had weapons of mass destruction, including (laughs) nuclear nuclear weapons, but they can't make this thing. It was pretty absurd. Iraq was probably, Iraq probably had the highest level of education of any population in the Middle East outside of Israel. It had its own good universities. It it was sending people abroad to study. 
much much like Iran has done. I mean, these are very educated societies, and to think that they couldn't make these things. This, they weren't Afghanistan. They weren't Yemen. They were a very educated people medically, in engineering and physics and all of these things, and they were perfectly capable of inventing these things and, and putting them together. Yeah, and you actually put in your article that, according to defense sources, basic armor-piercing weapons are easy to manufacture, drawing on principles discovered more than a century ago and, and in use since World War II. It adds that the system uses something called the Monroe Effect that you're referring to after a U.S. Navy scientist, Charles Monroe, who invented the technique in 1888. So it lends more credence to your claim. The other thing that is really bothersome to me is I've been following our war on terror, quote unquote, war on terror, when it comes to Syria, when it comes to ISIS and Iraq and etc. And there is no greater fighter and fighting team and leader of all that than Soleimani. He was responsible and it's very, very well documented. And he's really a, like a national hero in Iran. And and can you just tell us a little bit about Soleimani that you're familiar with at the time? And well, just I, know that, you know, I know that he was one of these guys. He was the head of the military in Iran. But unlike our leadership, you know, our, our generals, you don't see them in the front lines. He was traveling to the fighting zones against ISIS in western Iraq, and, you know, I don't think he went into Syria, but he was like right there where the action was and was very successful, really, as you said, in going after ISIS. But the, the other thing that's really important is that it's known that he was in Iraq traveling to a conference, which the Iraqis were hosting to end the mutual threats and gamesmanship. Uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which, you know, always threatened to turn into some kind of a conflict. Iran was trying to reach a deal with the Saudis through the good offices of the current Iraqi government mm -hmm. when he was killed. But well, less portrayed it as that he was planning attacks on Americans, which, as you say, made no sense at all. The U.S. was being pushed out of Iraq anyway. And to your point, I mean, I think what you just said is really important. I mean, that's probably as big a motivation for the Trump administration and not just Trump, but everyone before and after him to go after Soleimani. I oh, mean, I you, think you, it you, was the reason they went after him. They, they went after him to bust up the, the, the effort to mm -hmm. have a rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. That would totally defeat U.S. goals in the Middle East. That's very, very interesting and hugely important. I did want to correct one implication we made earlier in the show that Soleimani had not traveled to Syria when in fact he has on many occasions and just as in Iraq has been instrumental in the success that Syria had in defeating ISIS and, and Al-Qaeda in Syria. This according to very trusted sources that have frequented this show. Well, listen, I want to remind listeners that we are visiting with Dave Lindorf, the author and veteran 
investigative journalist that we have on for the first time here on Bringing Light into Darkness. I wanted to shift gears unless you want to make any final comments on that particular area there. Really, this month, or I should say last month, marked the 10th anniversary of Occupy Movement. And I just wanted to share a couple of things real quick. I mean, Occupy kind of made famous that 1% versus 99%, but the wealth inequality that we talk a lot about on this show is so asphyxiating in many ways. Oxfam, in a report that they put together just about a year and a half ago on January 20th of 2020, a time to care it indicated that the richest 1% in the world have more than double the wealth of 6.9 billion people. And then among that 1% was some 2,150 billionaires who in 2019 had more wealth than 4.6 billion people. Half the population. Yeah, (laughs) more than half the population. Yeah, exactly. But according to Oxfam, they put into the report a number of solution-oriented things. One had to do with increasing taxation to the wealthiest 1% for the next 10 years by just 0.5%. And that would create enough revenues to create 117 million care jobs in education, health, and elderly care, and other sectors to close these care deficits. But they went on in the report, and I think this is really important, because they said that at the bottom of the economy, women uh, and girls especially are marginalized. They put in some 12.5 billion hours every day of care work for free and countless more on poverty wages. And the Oxfam calculated that the work adds value to the economy of at least $10.8 trillion annually. But before we continue highlighting this Oxfam report on wealth inequality, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. We want to remind you that you are listening to 91.7 FM KOOP. This is Pedro Gatos. This is Bringing Light into Darkness. We'll be back right after this. <laughs> 